Welcome to the Room of Lives. I'm your host, Neil. In this episode, I speak to a university audience and take questions about my experiences at my first 10-day silent meditation retreat in 2017 in remote Texas. I begin with some background on my personal spiritual journey that led to this retreat. I describe the setting and structure of the retreat, the kinds of people I found there, and the meditation method. Then I share my experience, physical and mental, about hitting bottom and then finding a scratched message on a wooden bench that helped me start climbing back up. fifth year physics grad student and um, this summer I went to a 10-day meditation retreat and that's what I'm going to tell you about. Um, ben Ampir also went to the retreat with me and uh, that's that's where I got we got to know each other and um, the reason I asked him one of the reasons I asked him to be in this room is uh, the kind of experience that you have in a retreat like this is very subjective it depends on your past experiences and what your expectations are of a retreat like this. So the the lessons that you learn or not learn in a retreat such as this depends entirely on your personality. And so I didn't want any of you to leave this room thinking that the kind of story that I'm going to tell you is the only kind that's possible, or would set up your your expectations in any uh, in any such way. So I, I wanted at least a couple more voices. I think there's another friend of mine who also went to the retreat who was supposed to turn up, but she doesn't go to UT, so she might take some time finding this room. But uh, we're five minutes past, so I'll start. Anyway, I wanted to give a little spiel about what but the Malta seminar is about, but most faces I already know, so I'm just going to skip this. Uh, I assume that wherever we found this information, you also found the information to subscribe notifications that's how I have uh, spread my tentacles so um, yeah so I'll skip that um, uh, at the very beginning I want to give you hey Rustam okay second person who went to the retreat okay um, so I just want to give you some background my personal background and set up it hopefully explain the motivation for why I went to retreat like this um, I became, I, I was born in Kolkata, India, and although overall India is fairly religious, I was born in a very non-religious family, and I decided I'm a, an atheist at a very young age. I think at an age where I'm not even supposed to know what it's about, but it was some form of anti-authoritarianism that I think I was like three or four or something. Like that. I, I believe in God, I don't know what people do in these temples or something like that. And uh, I've remained an atheist still. But I think I was a little hardcore in my atheism in the sense that I rejected all sorts of rituals and even things like yoga and meditation and no one bothered me about it. Um, also, no one really um, taught me or showed me what meditation was really about when I was a kid. I had this, um, 
this idea of it being some sort of a woo-woo spiritual thing where you, you know, join your fingers like this and you sit down and like something happens. So, um, yeah, and so, um, but as I was growing up, I, um, I had philosophical slash spiritual ideas about, you know, what, 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 where did we come from and what happens after we die and stuff like that. Um, and, but some of them, I realize now we're just, uh, I don't know, just imaginations, like not based on anything. And I realize more and more um, that I didn't have foundations for believing in these ideas uh, based on anything rational. Especially as I started getting deeper and deeper into science, I abandoned all of these ideas. I abandoned the answers, but somehow the questions kept, like the question, like it still had questions and it still had curiosity. Um, but I kind of abandoned these ideas and was like, oh, science is the way to go and all of this spiritual stuff is just fiction. Um, but I think around uh, two years back, um, I read this book called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion uh, by Sam Harris, who did his undergrad in philosophy and then a PhD in neuroscience. Um, and then he spent a lot of his life in solitary retreats and uh, real hardcore Eastern spiritual practices. Um, he would go and, uh, I don't know, live in a cave for like months, just meditating and stuff like that. Um, and then he wrote this book. But I feel that it was pretty well grounded in science while still preserving a healthy amount of um, curiosity, the kind of curiosity that I felt, except that it didn't go overboard and try to answer it with uh, things that were irrational. But it was respectful towards the kinds of curiosity that might give birth to religion or spirituality. Um, so I connected to this book in some way because, you know, I, I was curious, but and now I realize that I don't really have to show these uh, curiosities under the rug because there are other scientists who are curious like me as well. And they haven't necessarily had to resort to um, traditional uh, answers that are non-scientific. Um, so um, actually, Stefan here, we were in the same book club and I tried to get everyone to read the book and like people had different uh, responses uh, to it. Sam Harris these days is mostly known as this public like talking head on TV or whatever and he has a lot of views on things like politics and uh, and Islam and stuff that I don't really care about too much. Uh, I, this is the only book that I've read of him and I didn't know anything about him before so it didn't color my opinion like the stuff that other people may know about him I didn't know so it didn't color my opinion of him. So I was able to absorb this book in a fairly neutral from a fairly neutral vantage point. And I noticed that when I recommend this book to other people, the problem is a lot of people already know about Sam Harris and I know about some of his more controversial views on other kinds of stuff. And so it doesn't filter through. So I mean, yeah, that's nothing I can do about it. Um, but yeah, um, I do want to read you, since, since I'm making such a big deal of this book, I do want to read you, um, not read you, but play to you uh, a reading of the first chapter of, of uh, Waking Up. And this is a reading by Sam Harris himself. Uh, let's see if this is working. Just to give you a hint of the kinds of things that he talked about that excited my curiosity.
A few years after my first painful encounter with solitude, in the winter of 1987, I took the drug 3,4-methylene-dioxy-N-methylamphetamine, MDMA, commonly known as ecstasy, and my sense of the human mind's potential shifted profoundly. Although MDMA would become ubiquitous at dance clubs and raves in the 1990s, at that time I didn't know anyone of my generation who had tried it. One evening, a few months before my 20th birthday, a close friend and I decided to take the drug. The setting of our experiment bore little resemblance to the conditions of Dionysian abandon under which MDMA is now often consumed. We were alone in a house, seated across from each other on opposite ends of a couch, and engaged in quiet conversation as the chemical worked its way into our heads. Unlike other drugs with which we were by then familiar, marijuana and alcohol, MDMA produced no feeling of distortion in our senses. Our minds seemed completely clear. In the midst of this ordinariness, however, I was suddenly struck by the knowledge that I loved my friend. This shouldn't have surprised me. He was, after all, one of my best friends. However, at that age, I was not in the habit of dwelling on how much I loved the men in my life. Now I could feel that I loved him, and this feeling had ethical implications that suddenly seemed as profound as they now seem pedestrian on the page. I wanted him to be happy. That conviction came crashing down with such force that something seemed to give way inside me. In fact, the insight appeared to restructure my mind. My capacity for envy, for instance, the sense of being diminished by the happiness or success of another person, seemed like a symptom of mental illness that had vanished without a trace. I could no more have felt envy at that moment than I could have wanted to poke out my own eyes. What did I care if my friend was better looking or a better athlete than I was? If I could have bestowed these gifts on him, I would have. Truly wanting him to be happy made his happiness my own. A certain euphoria was creeping into these reflections, perhaps, but the general feeling remained one of absolute sobriety and of moral and emotional clarity unlike any I had ever known. It would not be too strong to say that I felt sane for the first time in my life, and yet the change in my consciousness seemed entirely straightforward. I was simply talking to my friend about what I don't recall, and I realized that I had ceased to be concerned about myself. I was no longer anxious, self-critical, guarded by irony, in competition, avoiding embarrassment, ruminating about the past and future, or making any other gesture of thought or attention that separated me from him. I was no longer watching myself through another person's eyes. And then came the insight that irrevocably transformed my sense of how good human life could be. I was feeling boundless love for one of my best friends, and I suddenly realized that if a stranger had walked through the door at that moment, he or she would have been fully included in this love. Love was at bottom impersonal and deeper than any personal history could justify. Indeed, a transactional form of love, I love you because, now made no sense at all. The interesting thing about this final shift in perspective was that it was not driven by any change in the way I felt. I was not overwhelmed by a new feeling of love. The insight had more the character of a geometric proof. It was as if having glimpsed the properties of one set of parallel lines, I suddenly understood what must be common to them all. The moment I could find a voice with which to speak, I discovered that this epiphany about the universality of love could be readily communicated. My friend got the point at once. All I had to do was ask him how he would feel in the presence of a total stranger at that moment, and the same door opened in his mind. It was simply obvious that love, compassion, and joy in the joy of others extended without limit. The experience was not of love growing, but of its being no longer obscured. Love was, as advertised by mystics and crackpots through the ages, a state of being. How had we not seen this before? And how could we overlook it ever again?
So, um, like the whole book is filled with a lot of stuff that, that I, I thought made a lot of sense. I didn't have to believe in anything in order to uh, resonate with that. Um, and so, uh, sometime after reading this book, which also had basic um, instructions for meditation, I started meditating. Hey? <clears throat> um, okay. okay, third and fourth people. So, they went to the retreat with me as well. Um, yeah, I started meditating, but it was sort of irregular. Um, I would try, I, I was very ambitious at first, so I started meditating an hour a day and then whittled it down to a half hour and uh, then, I don't know, I couldn't maintain that either, so I guess I went down to five minutes or so. Uh, but then I wasn't being regular um, and I started talking to some of my friends who have been to meditation retreats um, and a couple of them had been to the particular one that I eventually went to and uh, the, the thought of a 10-day silent meditation retreat was intimidating to me, um, but they told me that I would survive. Uh, they said, yeah, it's not going to be a joyride, but you're probably going to survive. So at a certain point, I decided the only way, I mean, I kept thinking, like, what's going to happen if I go? And I realized that the only way to have an answer is to actually go and find out. Um, so, and the, the other thing that I should mention is that it's a free retreat. They don't actually, so you, you stay there and you, you eat and you live there and it's all free. And they don't let you even donate anything until you finish the retreat. And even then, it's a donation, it's voluntary. Um, so, um, yeah, so at a certain point of time, I started gearing up for the retreat. I signed up for it. And uh, Rustam, my friend here, he said that, uh, so we kind of decided together that there was one particular retreat that we would both go to. He would go and serve. He had been to the retreat before. Um, but there's a group of people who have who have to actually serve and volunteer in order for other people to participate. So he would go and serve and I would uh, go as a, as a participant. Um, and at that time I was getting kind of excited about this meditation idea. And I even thought to myself that once I'm done with my PhD, I'm taking at least one gap year, just going off to a monastery and just meditating and finding out what's in there, what's going to, you know, whatever. That's like the, the ultimate uh, treasure trove of information is right here. If only I pay attention. Okay, so so this is this this is the setting for uh, for my my embarkment on the retreat. Um, so when I was signing up, I read some information on the website, and um, so I'll I'll read to you a little bit from from what the website says. So this is the center is called the Southwest Vipassana Meditation Center. Uh, Vipassana is a form of meditation. Um, and it's in Kaufman, Texas, not a place that any of you have heard of unless you've actually been to the retreat. It's in the middle of nowhere, um, which is itself in the middle of nowhere. And it's just, yeah, it's, you won't find it. Anyway, um, so just to give you an idea of what, what this center is about, what the kind of meditation is about, this is from their website. <clears throat> um, and I, I don't subscribe to everything that they're saying here, but just to give you Vipassana is one of India's most ancient meditation techniques. Long lost to humanity, it was rediscovered by Gautama the Buddha more than 2,500 years ago. The word Vipassana means seeing things as they really are. It is a process of self-purification by self-observation. One begins by observing the natural breath to concentrate, to concentrate the mind. 
With a sharpened awareness, one proceeds to observe the changing nature of body and mind and experiences the universal truths of impermanence, suffering, and egolessness. This truth realization by direct experience is the process of purification. The entire path, called Dhamma, is a universal remedy for universal problems and has nothing to do with any organized religion or sectarianism. For this reason, it can be freely practiced by everyone at any time in any place without conflict due to race, community, or religion, and will prove equally beneficial to one and all. Although Vipassana was developed as a technique by the Buddha, its practice is not limited to Buddhists. There is absolutely no question of conversion. The technique works on the simple basis that all human beings share the same problems, and a technique which can eradicate these problems will have a universal application. People from many religious denominations have experienced the benefits of Vipassana meditation, and have found no conflict with their profession of faith. During the course, it is absolutely essential that all forms of prayer, worship, or religious ceremony, fasting, burning incense, counting beads, reciting mantras, singing and dancing, etc. be discontinued. All other meditation techniques and healing or spiritual practices should also be suspended. This is not to condemn any other technique or practice, but to give a fair trial to the technique of Vipassana in its purity. What Vipassana is not, it is not a rite or ritual, ritual based on blind faith. It is neither an intellectual nor a philosophical entertainment. It is not a rest, cure, a holiday, or an opportunity for socializing. It is not an escape from the trials and tribulations of everyday life. What Vipassana is, it is a technique that will eradicate suffering. It is a method of mental purification which allows one to face life's tensions and problems in a calm, balanced way. It is an art of living that one can use to make positive contributions to society. So I signed up for this retreat and when it came close to the day that the retreat was supposed to start, um, what happened is Rustam's car broke down and we were supposed to drive there with, with his car. And it came to the point where Rustam said, well, you know, I'll probably not be able to go. And so I was like, oh, okay, this is my first 10 day silent meditation retreat out in the middle of nowhere. And I was kind of banking on Rustam to come with me. Although you wouldn't be able to talk, but just the idea that someone that you know is there. And so this, I felt a sense of risk. Um, but I think I'm kind of drawn to risks. So at that point of time, I was like, yeah, it's okay, I guess, let's see. It just kind of puts an element of adventure. So I went on a message board for uh, um, organizing ride shares, uh, carpools. And I found a guy who responded, uh, but then the next year Rustam's car was fixed. And the guy who responded um, actually said, oh, okay, your car's fixed. Well, can I jump on board with you guys? <laughs> so, <laughs> so his name was Paul and we went to pick it up. It was a little bit out of the way, but he, it, it was kind of interesting. He lives in this uh, farm, I guess. He lives in an RV and just grows stuff like vegetables and stuff. And he built this uh, martial art dojo in the middle of the forest. And he just lives in an RV. There's a bunch of dogs and chickens. And so, okay, so this is where the hippies have retreated. Um, so that was interesting. We picked him up um, and then we went to the place. Um, so I want to give you a general description of the location. It's just farmland. It's just Texas farmland. And uh, the the, the grounds opposite the Vipassana Center, uh, in fact, like they were, they had like uh, Trump posters and stuff, and uh, so, but 
there was this just one this, this sign that said Vipassana and you go in there and it's um, like a block of land and just sparse houses here and there like a, an office a kitchen a meditation hall and then living quarters um, I have some pictures here just to give you a sense So, yeah, I mean, these are pictures that I've found on the internet. I didn't put any photos there. But as you can see, it's mostly, so yeah, I mean, it's just mostly just empty fields and then just a couple of houses scattered around. Um, that's the pagoda where some, some people meditate. But in general, there's another meditation hall where most of the people meditate most of the time. Um, so, yeah. That's that's what the surroundings are like, um, and then so on the first day we got to talk to some people um, before the the vow of noble silence uh, starts, um, and um, most of the people. Okay, so what kind of people were there? I was a little concerned that there would be a lot of woo woo kinds of people that you know, I, and they would really turn me off from the whole thing, and I would regret. Um, the whole decision, but um, a lot of people, so they were, okay, a lot of them were white, some of them were Asian, a lot of them were Indian, uh, because I guess this this technique uh, traditionally um, has connections with India and the East, uh, but a lot of people there were kind of just, just my age, you know, like urban, pretty well-educated, intelligent people. Like the first day I struck up a conversation with Benam and he had read Sam Harris and he listened to the podcast on the way and I was like well, okay all right so uh, I'm not entirely uh, a fish out of the water here so so that was interesting I met another guy called James T.W. who created this thing called Poke Draw, and it's this thing where you go on this website and you get like 30 seconds to draw Pokemon um, and it like it became viral and it just like spread all around the world um, and he had a donation button on the page, but he got no money out of it, but he became really famous. So, so he was there. Um, but at the same time, I think there, there were some people there with, with weird beliefs, like um, Paul, who we picked up on the way back, he was talking about um, how someone once hooked a lie detector to a tree and then... Um, like you could, like the trees could, t like listening to the lie detector, you could tell that the trees knew what was true and not like if you threatened it, like I'm going to burn you down, but you didn't really mean to, then the lie detector wouldn't respond. But I mean, you can't hook a lie detector up to a tree because it responds to skin conductances and it has to do with sweating. So, but anyway, so, <laughs> that there's a wide mix of people with different backgrounds um, that, that come to a retreat like this. Um, so let's see. This is going to be like a, a talk heavy talk, not a slide heavy talk. Um, okay, so a general description of the course, uh, you, you sign in, you turn in um, all of your uh, technology, uh, if you have any religious objects, you uh, turn those in, um, you, turn, you cannot keep any books, uh, any writing material, uh, no phones or anything like that. Um, and then on the first day, I think it's on the first day that uh, the, the vow of silence starts, right? Okay, and then the whole course 
for the whole duration of the course, women and men are separate to reduce distraction. Yes. Um, yeah, so we had separate living quarters, we had separate kitchens, and in the meditation hall, uh, we like the men sat on the left, and the women sat on the right. Um, yeah, and then my living, the, the room in which I lodged was just fairly simple. It just had a bed and a shelf and an alarm clock and a stool, and that was it. Um, and I didn't bring, I just brought my clothes, and that was it. Um, yeah. That alarm clock is going to be etched in my memory for a long time. <laughs> was this, uh, I thought I wouldn't have to see technology like that ever again, but like every morning as I woke up, it was just this, oh man, I'm still here. <laughs> this alarm clock. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's also something kind of, yeah, just something negative about just an alarm clock, but it's like very... In person, like this old alarm class, they're like, yeah, yeah, like, never mind. <laughs> so I didn't have a healthy relationship with that alarm class. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, and then in the meditation hall, uh, there were these cushions in a grid. The whole thing was very well organized. So uh, they would, as, as you went into the meditation hall, they would assign you a seat uh, by name, um, and that would be your location, your, your cushion for the entire duration so that they would be able to uh, like triangulate you. And so if you went missing, they would know, okay, so it's this person who's not here. Um, and so, yeah, and there were additional cushions outside uh, that people could uh, use. Um, and then around the area, so these are the living quarters, but then around the area, there were some walking paths just, just through a little bit of uh, woods, I guess, um, that you could take a walk around, but you are not allowed to run, jog, exercise, do yoga, or anything. Thing. Just, just you can take a walk. Um, and so, this was the schedule for the pretty much the entire duration of the uh, course. So, there's a person, an actual person, who walks around through the residential quarters. Uh, ringing a bell at 4 a.m. to wake you up. Um, that wasn't enough for me, so I had to set the alarm. Um, uh, 4.30 to 6.30 a.m., meditate in the hall or in your room. The hall is the common meditation hall. Um, in the beginning, at the start of the course, I actually used to go to the meditation hall at 4.30, but then I meditated in my room from <laughs> 4.30 to 6.30. The clearest of minds. <laughs> 6.30 to 8, breakfast. Then 8 to 9, group meditation. Um, then 9 to 11. Yeah, um, once again, uh, you can either be in the meditation hall or you can be in your room. Lunch break. So, um, the, the style of meditation that was uh, being followed here was in the tradition of someone called S.N. Goenka, who actually passed away in 2013, but he was um, a Burmese Indian Vipassana teacher who taught many students in India and Burma, I guess, and then eventually he helped set up these Vipassana centers all around the world, and this is one of them. Um, he is, he's dead now. 
but there are assistant teachers there who essentially don't play a very active role during the whole meditation uh, retreat. But if you have any questions, uh, you can go up to them and ask. Uh, so from 12 to 1, you can go and ask questions um, to, the, to the assistant teacher. And then, yeah, once again, meditation in the hall or in your room, group meditation in the hall, uh, blah, blah, tea break, group meditation in the hall. And then this is where they would play uh, recorded videos of SN Goenka um, that were recorded during an actual 10-day meditation retreat that he taught. So uh, every evening we would have a discourse where he would kind of talk about general things or give a new set of instructions. Um, and then once again, group meditation, this is question time in the hall, and then, yeah, just go um, So you actually do talk to That's the only opportunity to talk, is to ask questions uh, to the teachers. There was one time, one time that I asked a question. Actually, twice I asked two questions. And that was, that was all I said during those 10 days, during those two questions. The silence wasn't the hard part. Um, I'll come to what was the hard part. Um, okay, so the meditation method. Uh, it started with uh, a breathing meditation, just very generally paying attention to the breath. Um, and then paying attention to where you can feel the breath, like the, your nostrils and your upper lip. And then narrow it down to just the upper lip. And then eventually you start opening it up to an awareness of your entire body. Um, and then towards the later part of um, the retreat, the group meditation sessions. So this, 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 and this, and they became, um, so in during these uh, three sessions, four sessions, you were encouraged not to change your posture. So these one hour sessions, you had to settle down in a certain posture and not change it. So that was kind of hard. And then on day 10, we did a different kind of like loving kindness uh, meditation that was different from uh, everything else that we were doing. Um, and so during the evenings, we would have these discourses, and I just want to give you a little sample of what those were like. So this is an example of Goenka. Understand, our reasoning is universal. The melody is universal. When someone generates negativity, anger, or hatred, or envy, passion, fear, ego, and negativity, one becomes tense, becomes miserable. This applies to everyone. When you generate anger, what label can you give to this anger? Anger that now. This anger, which is a reason, is a Christian anger, or this is a Jewish anger, Hindu anger, or a Buddhist anger, or American anger, or English anger, or Russian anger. And there is anger. And then, so that was, yeah, that was just an example of the evening discourses. Um, yeah, so this was the, the general schedule for the entirety of the, of the duration. Um, and so, during the first several days, 
as we were meditating in this hall, uh, the first signs of difficulty that I had were physical. Um, in January 2014, when I did the Austin Full Marathon, I kind of injured my left knee. And as I was sitting down to meditate, this pain in my left knee started to arise again because I probably don't sit for extended periods of time uh, with my uh, leg folded. So then I had to go and ask for a backrest. Um, but then in the next couple of days, the pain just subsided surprisingly. Um, I guess my body just got used to my knee being folded and I gave it back. Um, however, as I looked around the room, <laughs> Because a lot of people are not used to sitting um, for long periods of time, they would go and get all these um, cushions from the the extra stash of cushions and build like literally thrones for themselves. Like of all, you would you would you could walk around the room and find thrones of all manner, um, and every hour they were being edited and slightly improved and architecturally <laughs> just yeah refabricated. Um, so yeah, so that was pretty interesting to see. But then as time went on, I guess the, the level, the, the degree of elaborateness in the throne started dwindling a little bit as people's bodies got more and more comfortable. Um, I noticed that the thrones would become a bit more minimal, just like one cushion on top of another cushion and that's it. Um, and that's, that's definitely something that I noticed with myself as well. Um, that as time went on, my body just got kind of more used to um, sitting just on a cushion. And eventually I was just sitting on a cushion and that was it. Um, the other thing is, I don't know if you noticed, but there is no dinner anywhere here. There's breakfast and there's lunch or there's tea, but there's no dinner. There was no dinner during so what people do and I did is <laughs> eat just eat a lot of food during lunch. Okay. So um, so I was eating a lot of lunch and then during tea break I I guess I would also just gorge on a lot of food. Um, and then eventually what happened is so you, you can tell that you're not spending a lot of energy during these ten days. You're just sitting there and Maybe a couple times during the day, you're out walking, just taking a walk. So you're eating all this food and then you're not expending any energy. And I think partly this is this this is a reason why when you're sitting down to meditate, your body is so agitated. There's just all this metabolic activities going on. There's no way to expend it. So your mind is just, let's get out and like run, I don't know, ride a cow or something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, eventually what happened is I started uh, eating much less. And maybe this was a reason why it helped my body and my mind calm down um, a little bit. Um, so yeah, okay. So this was the first several days. Before I went to the retreat, my friends who had gone to such a retreat had told me that the middle part would probably be the worst. So the first couple of days I was still pretty excited. Um, and it, 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 every evening during the discourse, we would usually get the instructions, the new instructions for uh, meditating the next day because they were slowly adding instructions or changing instructions. Um, so on the evening of day three, um, I was, so on day four it said it was going to be Vipassana day, which is that you get the full-fledged uh, instructions for Vipassana meditation. 
So I was expecting to get these instructions on the evening of day three because it would start Vipassana meditation on day four. But on the evening of day three, all that Goenka said in his recorded video was, okay, so far you are paying attention to the sensation of breath in the nostrils and the upper lip. Now focus just on the upper lip. I'm like, <laughs> that's not, what is, that's just, so that's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I got pretty frustrated. Um, and um, I remember that um, that was probably the worst, uh, worst part of the retreat for me is at a certain point of time, I felt like I was wasting my time. Not that everyone was wasting my time, that this retreat was a waste of time, that I was wasting my time, that I wasn't getting anything out of this. Um, but I remember that, so in the grounds, there was this wooden bench where people would sit um, just during the recess periods. And I was just sitting there and I was feeling pretty wretched. So, man, I, there's like six more days to go um, and I don't know what I'm doing here. Uh, not six, like it was seven more days to go. And I looked down and then something was uh, engraved, something was scratched into the wooden bench. And I got pretty curious and I just started looking at it from all angles. It was a little bit of writing, but it was hard to decipher what it was. But eventually looking at it from all angles, I could tell what it was saying. I don't know if you can read it here, but I took my time deciphering this. What do you think this says? I can't wait till day 10. It says, I can't wait till day 10. And so when I read that, I first thought, does this mean that this person is having such a great time that you know, like on day, they can't wait for day 10, so like they can tell everyone. But I was like, no, then they would probably say, I can't wait for day 10. I can't wait till day 10 <laughs> means something else, like they can't wait for this to be over. <laughs> I can't wait till day 10 means nothing else. So I kind of stared at this for a little bit and I thought, you know, perhaps I'm not the only person who's having a hard time here. Just that we're not talking to each other. So we impose these uh, ideas on like, we just keep feeling like, oh, everyone else is having such a great time and I'm not. But a person was obviously disturbed enough to etch this on the wooden <laughs> So there have been people who not only have they felt like, felt as um, challenged and frustrated as I'm feeling, some people have probably felt worse. I mean, I don't feel like, you know, scratching this into and just kind of complaining in my head. So when I saw that, um, somewhat surprisingly, that was my climb out of the depth of that valley. I was like, okay, so I, I think I can make it through. This is, it's not just happening to me, it's happened to other people and will happen to other people. And I remember the Buddha, like suffering is <laughs> the one thing that's common to everyone. Like, okay, cool. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing things according to the program here. I'm suffering right on schedule. So, <laughs> so this is fine. This is good. How did you get the photo? Oh, this was on day 10 after we got our phones back. I decided I knew I would give a talk at some point. So I went back and took that picture. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so on day four, we got the, we were given the Vipassana instructions, um, which 
which was essentially the instructions to um, to open up the awareness from just the sensation of the breath to anything that's happening all over the body. So just a sensation of the entire body. Um, and I had known of this previously as body scanning uh, meditation. Um, also, uh, on, on the day that we got these instructions, it was actually my birthday, but I didn't remember. I didn't realize it was my birthday until day eight, which was four days later. And then I was like, on day eight, I was like, wait, wasn't my birthday is supposed to be during the retreat. What date is it? What's <laughs> like, oh, it's four days past my birthday. I went four days without even realizing it. It's just that you're so far removed from your regular everyday life and people don't know you and you're not talking. You're not, you don't know, you don't wake up to the date and time and stuff like that, that it's very easy to forget stuff like this. It's, 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 it's a bit artificial and it puts you in a very artificial uh, space time. Um, so... Yeah, so um, so this this I saw this on day three, I guess. Around day six-ish, things started actually getting a lot better. The first really unambiguous effects I felt was that physically I was becoming a lot more comfortable with sitting down for extended periods of time. Um, I told you partly it's because I think I started eating less, but also I think if you just get your body just gets used to sitting in a certain posture it will eventually find it more natural and you won't have all these aches and pains in your back uh, anymore and if physically you're feeling like you can sit for longer periods of time it's kind of inextricably connected with how you feel mentally um, and the feedback process goes the other way as well even if physically you're very comfortable but you're mentally agitated it will eventually translate into some form of physical discomfort um, and I think that was one reason why they told us that towards the later part that during this group meditation sits of one hour, don't change your posture. And I think that was a good way for me to investigate that a lot of things that appear as physical discomforts are actually mental discomforts. And if you don't react to it, or I mean, if you, if you somehow resist the, the urge to react to it and just wait, you can see interesting things happen. Like you can see that urge go away. So what you felt eventually was um, an inevitable need to change your posture because of something that, that your body is telling you to do just passes and you're fine. And so that's, that's kind of interesting because if you think about it, we are probably responding, we are probably reacting to such impulses all the time without waiting for, without, without waiting to see what happens if you don't do anything. Sometimes responding to certain kinds of impulses is actually good. It's good for you. But at other times, it's probably not. For me, for example, a lot of the, I know that a lot of the things that I do, most of the things I do is to stave off boredom. And sometimes it leads to creative stuff. A lot of the times it's, it leads to stuff that's not really good for me. Like I would go and eat something because I'm bored. That's not a good reason to eat something. I'm like, I'm, I'm working at my desk and I feel bored and I switch to a different task. And then I get bored with that after five minutes, switch to the first task again. I mean, that's not very good. So a lot of the times I think if you, if you don't entertain it mentally, it will result in a, at least for me, I feel like physically like getting up and doing something. And then I make up an excuse. I'm like, oh, there's this bit of paper that I needed to get from this department for something that will happen seven years in the future. And I'll like, get up and do that. And like, take like a whole hour and go to the other end of campus. It's like, I'm just, I'm fooling myself. I'm giving myself the weakest of reasons to get up. And 
but it wasn't a physical need. It was like a mental need that translated into physical need. And it's just, yeah, I mean, but all I'm saying is the kinds of things that you start to notice are just amplified versions of what everyone goes through every day. It's just that we don't, we don't really pay attention. Uh, we don't wait for, uh, we, we just react too quickly. And then that puts us in a different mode where we are dealing with new things. But we didn't wait long enough for the first impulse to get conspicuous enough for us to attend to it. Like really, okay, so this is the impulse. Um, so, um, yeah, so around day six-ish and onwards, I realized that I could just sit still for a whole hour. I could just pick a posture and just sit without moving for a whole hour. And I could do this four times a day. And I didn't have any pain. Sometimes, yeah, my leg would entirely fall asleep by the end. And I wouldn't be able to like stand up like this, okay, all right, I'll just wait it out a little bit. But the, the newness of it was pretty exciting. I was like, man, I didn't know I could do this. Yeah. It was kind of like the first time I ran a marathon. I didn't know that I could do it. So that was kind of exhilarating. But it was also pretty draining and exhausting because that's the physical part. Um, mentally, mentally, it was a lot harder. I realized that I had a very, very, very restless mind. I don't know. I guess many other people realized it as well. Um, but it was very agitated. So the mental image I had was of a well-oiled and strong sumo wrestler and I was trying to pin him down. It just keeps slipping. And uh, the instructions are simple. You know, just pay attention to the breath or pay attention to the body. But I, I mean, if you start doing it, you'll notice you can't do it for 30 seconds straight. It's impossible. Your mind has just been thrice around the world by that time. You know, that you're just supposed to focus on uh, the breath. But um, if you're supposed to be doing it for 10 days, you just see so many repeated examples of your mind just everywhere that uh, it can get kind of frustrating. For me, it, it got kind of frustrating, but I guess to some extent I expected it. Um, I knew that um, I knew that it was, was going to be uh, that way uh, to some extent. But eventually what happens is as you keep returning your attention again and again, and it's important to do it kindly. Like if you start um, being unkind to yourself, like, oh, you piece of shit, you can't do anything. You know, just you can't even like hold your attention on the breath. That's not going to go anywhere. You just have to kind of accept that this is what your mind is like. Um, if you keep doing it, what I saw was that um, towards the end of the retreat, I noticed, so once, I'll just give you an example. I told you that there were these paths you could walk around in. So, and there were some wooden benches located at different points in this path and you could go and sit. I remember once just going and sitting on a wooden bench and I just stared out at a field. There was nothing going on, maybe a couple of cows. That's it, just to feel the adjacent field. And I just stared at that for like a half hour or so. And like man I I don't think I could could have done this before just the simple act of sitting down and looking at a field where nothing's going on and feeling hmm, okay I don't think I'm wasting my time or I need to be anywhere else that was pretty new I don't think I could have done that with, if I hadn't gone to the retreat and during the time that I'm like watching like, like just looking out at this field um, I could tell that the, my mind was still restless 
like it still wanted me to do something else but it was a lower amplitude overall like it wasn't as uh, it wasn't it was not an overwhelming feeling of restlessness i i was aware that it was restless but it wasn't enough to get me to get up and do something also as i sat there i realized that this voice that's telling me that you know this is boring get up and do something else was completely futile what am i going to do there is nothing that i can do i can possibly go back to my room and then do what i'm going to sit there for 5 minutes until the same voice tells me this is boring and then come back here again like the whole futility of this voice started to become very clear to me and normally this the futility of what it says is obscured by the fact that you can make up excuses and there are many other sources of distraction so it feels like you're doing something useful when you constantly respond to this voice by um by ceasing to do the thing that you're doing and starting something else or you know entertaining a new distraction but over there the futility of this voice started to become very clear to me because although i knew that there was nothing to do the fact that the voice kept saying that means that the voice doesn't care about the use of what it is suggesting you to do all that the voice cares about is to not be here not be doing this no matter what it is if if it just kind of gets used to it for a little bit it will not and and you can i think there is a hedonic treadmill here like you can get um you can get to the point where even things that really arrested your attention before now start to bore you more and more often um i mean i don't know personally it has happened to me like when i was growing up i would find a new band or a new album and i would be immersed in that album just playing it again and again but now the whole the, the the music of the whole world is at my fingertips and i'm bored like every 30 seconds like i i find a new band listen to three songs like now this is not good what's the next one and so that i think is just this the mind has this really wide range of um adjusting itself and it can you can use it for good or it can use you so it just kind of i think a retreat like this if nothing else it brings you in hard contact with uh this voice in the head that's always complaining and um so there are two ways to go about it either you always satisfy the voice but that's hard if you have a lot of money it's not very hard but if you don't have a lot of money even if you have a lot of money it can be hard um but if you run out of resources to appease this voice the other thing is to just sit down and listen to the voice and see what where that conversation goes but it can be a very unpleasant conversation um so anyway so um yeah i i remember writing this down that the futility of the restless mind always wanting to be elsewhere became very clear to me um also i remember yeah and does that help you now to do your work when you don't let it less often <laughs> yeah. We concentrate on a task for a longer time. Uh it requires uh, what I would say is it requires continued practice. This is not uh a theory where someone tells you and you understand. It's about practice. It's about habits of the mind and even if for a particular period of time you realize that the mind works in a certain way, if you if you if you drop the practice, then that that insight is not going to help you. You you may remember that I realized that, but it's not going to help you in a day-to-day life. 
So in many ways, I kind of equate meditation with physical exercise. Like people can tell you and you can go to a gym and do a crash course and figure out, oh, if I do this, this happens. And then if you stop doing it, it's just going to return to what it does. And so these days, I think, yeah, I'm very susceptible to urges like this all the time. And I'm trying to um, progressively address it. Um, I talked to a friend of mine, actually, who told me, okay, don't try to discipline your whole day like this. Just try to work five minutes more than your mind will let you. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's, I'll try that. But if nothing else, I'm very aware of it. I think earlier, I may not have told you that I have this tendency because it wasn't clear to me. Plus, I would have like self-defense strategies. Like, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm better than that. But I'm not. It's just I'm so susceptible to these things that um, the, f the first place to start is to acknowledge. So even as I'm listening to this voice and running errands that I don't need to, I know that I'm doing that now. So hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully that goes somewhere. So, um, yeah, um, and so, but, but I remember that, uh, so yeah, I remember sensing an elevated and a more stable background level of calm as I sat on the bench, but I do remember that I felt like I was a very brief visitor there. It, it, I realized that I had had to do a lot of meditation to gain this very, this calmness that felt very fragile and that I had to keep doing meditation to sustain this. And that felt a little bit disappointing, but I don't think the actual story is quite as bad as that. Since the retreat, I have uh, maintained a daily practice of meditation, just 15 minutes a day. And although it doesn't solve this problem entirely, it still goes a long way uh, towards addressing it. I think my eating habits are better. I um, Shortly after I end, I, I uh, finished the meditation retreat, I started going to the gym every day and it stopped becoming a chore. It's like, yeah, okay, so I mean, there can be compounding effects. Um, so for, for some habits, there's a little bit of a, a threshold and once you cross it, it actually becomes an easier thing to do. Um, so yeah, and so at the, at the very end of the retreat, I guess on days 9 and 10, there was this pagoda where there were individual solitary cells, just dark cells where you could go and meditate. Um, and I did that. The only problem is that the way that the pagoda is constructed, it's very noisy. Like if, I were, if someone closes the door very far, it just echoes all around the pagoda. So it, I think it was kind of defeating the purpose of uh, solitary meditation cell. Because you can hear people everywhere. Um, but I remember that during a couple of those sits, um, my mind was very restless and I realized that the only way for me to make progress was really address this head on. So I kept trying to return my attention to the breath like every couple seconds or so. Um, I wouldn't let the thoughts just like take hold for more than a couple seconds. And it was draining. Like I wasn't doing anything physical, but by the end of a, such a um, sit, like a one hour sit, I would be mentally exhausted. But I would also feel very proud of it. So, yeah. But, um, so yeah, overall, I had to wrestle a lot with the restlessness of my mind. And because of this reason, I realized that I would not be a good fit for, you know, just going off to a monastery for a year and becoming a monk. Just my mind is just too restless. Um, but I didn't feel any guilt associated with that. It was, it was important for me to realize this. And 
um, to some extent, I feel like if you just live in a monastery for a long time, you have to suppress your levels of curiosity about the external world. Um, and I wasn't really prepared to do that, and I felt okay with it. So before going to the retreat, I felt like it would solidify my intention to go and take a year off. It did the exact opposite, but I'm glad anyway. Um, there were a couple of things about the retreat that I didn't like. Um, so for example, during the evening discourses, there were some unscientific things that Asim Goenka said. Like for example, he referred to the invention of the bubble chamber, it's a physics apparatus. And he said that uh, the bubble chamber shows that all matter, including um, the body is made of wavelets and bubbles. So every particle of body can be sensed at every moment as this tide of bubbles uh, by the mind. But uh, when they went and interviewed the scientist who came up with the bubble chamber, it turned out that he was a very depressed person. And that was supposed to be surprising because he came up with this theory that should tell him that, oh, everything is just rising and passing away. But it's because he never really applied it to his daily life. I was like, no, that, that doesn't, that kind of sounds phony. Uh, and he talked about the reincarnation stuff, which is, you know, standard Buddhist belief. Something about a samkara that I didn't know before, but it's kind of like bad karma. Um, when you are coming to the end of this life, what happens is all of your accumulated samkaras, which are all the negativities that you produced and generated, uh, kind of arise and give birth to a new mind somewhere else, and that's your next life. And so once you run out of all sankharas, like you do something with that gets rid of all your current as well as your past stock of sankharas, a new mind will not be born and uh, you will be liberated. And that's nirvana. It's like, yeah, well, you know, the rest of Vipassana is about real first person experience. And I don't see any evidence for any of this stuff. So this is like the polar opposite of the rest of the philosophy. But you don't have to buy into this. It's just that I kind of found it hard to sit through all of this stuff um, and to be honest that kind of eroded to some extent the, the degree of respect that I was feeling for the institution and the person but it doesn't matter when they ask you to meditate and close your eyes and it's just you do what you do no one can tell you what to do um, so yeah and I remember that uh, during the retreat there were several creative ways because I was always attacked so much by boredom there were some creative ways that I figured out how to stave off boredom. One, I had a razor. If you try to balance your razor on your fingertip, that can entertain you for a long time. <laughs> and, so, and I figured out that although a razor has this little head, it actually helps because it increases the moment of inertia. Never mind. But <laughs> okay. So I took body wash and like I did something that I, I had, the last time I'd done this, I was a kid. You shake the body wash and the bubbles start rising and the big bubbles rise first and the smaller bubbles are slower <laughs> you just watch it whoa this is so cool okay shower i took a lot of showers i was the cleanest <laughs> cleanest i've ever been okay and this last one i systematically tried to deprive myself of oxygen just to see <laughs> so i took an umbrella i put like a, a blanket on top of that and i like wedged myself up like on my bed against the corner like this and I put the umbrella and everything like okay no no oxygen let's just observe what happens now. <laughs> 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 this 
this is how restless my mind <laughs> Okay, it's not a good thing. Uh, I, I don't know, it will kill me someday. So, but there wasn't enough time. Uh, so it was like one hour and then we had to go meditate again. And I couldn't deprive myself of oxygen enough. So, well, that, yeah, that experiment aborted there. People watching. You can't talk to these people, so you project all sorts of personalities on them. <laughs> and you get like a little bit of information, you build a whole story out of it. So, uh, by the way, some of the people dropped. Before you sign up for the retreat, they really make sure in bold letters, like, you know, you are really committing to this. Don't cancel. You can't cancel. When, they, when you go there, they make you sign a piece of paper saying you can't leave. But you can leave, but they really encourage you to not leave. Like, if you feel like leaving, don't start. But some people drop anyway. Like, you know, a certain day I would go to the meditation hall and suddenly, like, a guy would be missing and never turn up, you know. Um, so, yeah, some, some people dropped. Um, I remember one of these people who dropped, he, uh, he was in the same, like, small group as me that we would go in and ask the teacher questions. And he once asked something about, uh, you know, some, some vegetarians incorporate egg into their diets. Is that okay? And the assistant teacher is like, you don't have to be vegetarian to do Vipassana. So, so anyway, I mean, so a lot of people have a lot of questions that had nothing to do with meditation. There was a guy in the kitchen who would take the soy milk, <laughs> take the soy milk and just shake it for five minutes. Shake it vigorously for five minutes. And I would, I remember, like, I was just like, what a dick. Just, just shaking the soy milk. <laughs> you shake the soy milk and then pour it. And one time I went right after him and then I poured the soy milk and it was so frothy. And just, it's like, whoa. And the next day I was the one. <laughs> and I talked to him at the end of the retreat. I'm like, man, you're. Uh, Soy milk thing that's just it's opened my life up to many opportunities. I'm gonna shake my soy milk all the time. <laughs> this guy had a friend and they were communicating through gestures the whole retreat. And then one time when I was taking a walk, I saw them both up on a tree and they were just laughing and talking to each other. <laughs> I was like, okay, whatever, they're having fun. But I didn't tell on them or anything. There was a guy who, who, who burped at regular intervals during the meditation. Like you, could, you could tell, like, okay, so it's like a burp every 10 minutes, so like six burps is a meditation sitting. <laughs> it's very regular. Okay, there was another guy who had a t-shirt um, that on the back it said, C Naropa CPBP Competitive Meditation Team. Oh, yeah. And on the front, it said, do you even sit, bro? <laughs> and for some time, I thought this was a sarcastic thing. But then, you know, like, you know, mine is just sitting there complaining about stuff. So it's just, yeah, that guy is such a douchebag. What is he thing? Like, a competitive meditation team? And then I just projected this picture of this, oh, he just thinks he's so much better than everyone. And then on day 10, I went up to him like, What's that t-shirt? And he said, yeah, it was a gag that some of my friends put together. I was like, oh, I see, okay. And he was just a, the nicest of people. It's like, man, like, your mind just needs fodder. Um, and then, yeah, uh, Gopi who's sitting there in the back, uh, for some reason I thought she was Italian. And uh, then I met her later at, um, 
at the Blanton Museum and she turned out to be well you know so just like you just build these stories out of nothing about other people because you can't talk um, there were a lot of animals around that area uh, someone found a scorpion on their meditation mat uh, one thing that was true was that there were chiggers I didn't know what chiggers are but there were signs posted saying oh there are chiggers outside uh, like don't go among the bushes and stuff and you know, I used to take walks and then at night what would happen is like I would just my skin would itch everywhere, like this like red spots and nighttime me would decide, okay, no more walks in the woods. Daytime me would decide, No, I need to take a walk. This is boring. So I would go nighttime me would like, Oh my god, no more walks. Okay. So so these triggers actually Later on, I reasoned that the kinds of effects that they have on your body have a lot to do with the kind of meditation that we're doing. Number one, their bites immediately bring you to an awareness of the body. So this is, this is part of what the point of the meditation was. Also, you scratch these bites because of craving, but um, simultaneous with the pleasure arises new pain. And so <laughs> you realize that pleasure and pain are like, two sides of the same coin. So it was such a clear demonstration. Also, if you refrain from scratching, you see that the, the, the urge to scratch kind of passes away after a while. So, uh, yeah, so there are hands-on Buddhism tool. I made this picture. <laughs> there's, the, there's a mascot of Buddhism. Okay, they may have been planted there. Okay, so immediately after coming back, this is where I'll end. Uh, immediately after coming back on the first day, um, because you're back in your regular life, the contrast is very stark. During the time in the, the meditation retreat, it's an artificial place and you don't really get to gauge uh, the changes. But once I was back in Austin, you can see much more clearly the differences in the ways that you think or act you feel. Um, so, but I, I kind of knew that these effects were short-lived and would go away. So I made sure to write them down on the day that I came. So I'll, I'll read to you verbatim what I wrote down on the day that I came. <clears throat> these were bullet points I wrote down in my phone. First point is clearest, least ambiguous effect. General increase in calmness and happiness. Thought about it clearly not contingent on circumstances. Okay, so point number two. Increase in attention towards mundane things. Increase in appreciation of regular things. For example, took a walk to Eastwoods Park, which is nearby, near my house. It's raining and pretty outside, but even so had a much greater arresting appreciation for the natural beauty and can pay more relaxed, intent attention to things. Increased empathy with people. Um, for example, I took a haircut on the day I came back. And I remember that I spoke to the lady who gave me the haircut in a in an exceptionally cheerful and warm way. Uh, I spoke to my landlord in a much more compassionate, empathetic feeling way, letting him speak and finish his uh, sentences, something that I'm not very good at. Um, and I said, I remember saying fewer things that were actually closer to what I was feeling. And there was much less fluff. Um, and when he spoke about my landlady's illness, I could more clearly and immediately identify uh, the pain that I felt as being sympathetic sadness, like it was just much more clear to understand what was going on. Um, 
haven't tested it too explicitly yet, but know that there will be less tendency of aversive impulses, such as shying away from unpleasant tasks, will probably be more productive. I don't have any moderately unpleasant research work to do today, so can't tell for sure. So that's that's the end of my notes there. And that is all I have to say about my retreat. But I have a couple people here. Uh, there's uh, Benam, um, Angela, right? Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot. Terrence. Yeah, Terrence and Gopi and Rustam, who also went to the retreat. So feel free to talk to them about their experiences. But thanks a lot for being here and listening to me. Well, the first was just about my posture. I told him that my knee was paining, and so he asked me to get a backrest. The second question I had was a theoretical one about the concept of the self that didn't have much to do with the meditation, but I was just kind of theoretically uh, curious, and he didn't give um, a very satisfactory answer to it. And now, in retrospect, I see why he didn't, because the kind of question that I asked was not really in line with the tradition that they follow um, or the way I asked that question was yeah but it, it's not very important to the practice itself um, yeah something about the feeling of uh, feeling of the self or something like that. yeah but that's that, that will require a whole other you know, introduction to explain that question yeah did uh, did, did did the teachers also meditate? Yeah. Wow. So well, some of the times they did. During some other sessions, uh, after we started the meditation, they, I noticed that they would leave. Like, they would get up their chairs and leave. But, you know, you have to give them a break. They're doing this all the time, year-round. So, yeah. Wow. But a lot of the times they would just like, sit and meditate. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I would just like to say that I have shared the experience of um, having an urge, for example, to go and meditate. And yeah. I guess, like, um, where the real goal is like, you know, to be more productive, like, do something that you actually want to do. Yeah. Not necessarily want to be spending my time on meditating or whatever. Yeah. And I had the uh, exact same sort of like, you have the urge, it's very strong, and you try to um, ignore it. And if you manage for a very long time to suppress it, then it will eventually go away. It's what's for chocolate ice cream. Reddit, yeah, etc. So uh, it's cool that I got some like someone yeah. else who's had the same. You described it pretty much exactly. Yeah, same. true. Yeah, I, I do want to say you don't suppress, right? You just observe it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah totally. That's, that's yeah. You don't really, you don't really suppress yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. From, it's definitely from yeah. the meditative sort. It's it's a midway. Thing. It's kind of midway between suppressing it and yielding to it. You, you observe it in its fullness. But you don't react. You don't do what it's asking you to do. But you, but you really feel what it's like. A lot of the times during those sits, as I felt restless, I tried to observe what that feeling of restlessness was like. Like, is it? Does it feel like heat coming up my chest, or what is it? So. Yeah, I have crude thoughts about it. <laughs> and I think it's fine to go on Reddit. It's just that, uh, like, for example, on the day that I was back. 
if I went on YouTube or something like that, I feel like I would be actually paying more attention. But I mean, you can you can read, you can watch stuff, and it can educate you. But when it's controlling you in a certain way, and it's not really our fault. Like I listened to a podcast on the the, the Sam Harris podcast where he had this person on, and he used to work for Silicon Valley. Uh, his name is Tristan Harris. And now he has started this foundation called Time Well Spent because he wasn't a big fan of what people in Silicon Valley were doing or what their motivations were for creating these apps. Essentially, there's this attention economy and all these people uh, who are creating these apps want to hog as much of the user's attention as possible. So it's not a coincidence that these apps end up being things that are, you know, that really kind of arrest your attention. They're being designed to do that. So it's not entirely our fault, but it's still, at the end of the day, until policies are implemented, it's our responsibility to, to decide what we do with our time. So, yeah. All said and done, I'm still going to watch YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to do something about it. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, if you've done any like social media purges. Like, when I first got into it over the summer, into meditation, uh, I like went through my YouTube subscriptions and Instagram follows and I just like, you know, I may enjoy watching that video, but ultimately unimportant unsubscribe. Yeah. I'm wondering if you did that. I did some before, not, not after the retreat, but before I definitely did. I remember there was a point of time where I realized that this Facebook scrolling thing was really literally like a drug addiction. Um, it was giving me the same like this is this is what addiction is like and so i deactivated my facebook for several months and so if you deactivate nothing's happening so there's no reason to go back to facebook there's nothing happening and so but i reactivated it eventually because people like create events on facebook that's really the only reason that it's um useful but i noticed that after I went back to Facebook, I didn't have the, this impulse to scroll or post or stuff like that. But over time, that 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 urge slowly came back to the point where I recently deactivated and then reactivated again to share this event. It's just this, yeah, I don't know what to do about it. Uh, after the meditation, I thought that I would be able to uh, set aside uh, a couple minutes a day for Facebook just to see if there's an event going on and not check it the rest of the day. That was a disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No yeah. And when they created these endless video streams And they all want to one up each other. Like YouTube is like, okay, now we are going to start automatically playing the next video. No. Unless yeah. you cancel it. So I remember like we have seen we have all been the witness of the evolving forms of this technology so i remember back when at the end of a youtube video you didn't even get suggestions and now it will automatically play the next suggestion it doesn't care it's like a, um like, like a slot machine <laughs> yeah actually the guy tristan harris the silicon valley guy said that the inspiration for the infinite scroll was the slot machine yeah you just pay your life <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I mean, I remember a while back I went to uh, Congress Bridge to see the bats, and there was this little girl sitting on the grass in front of me. And as the bats came out, she was just on her phone. 
this is this is this, this technology can be dangerous. I I mean, this is like thousands of bats coming out of <laughs> the bridge. And there's like a little animated thing like shooting something into the next valley. And you're like poking at it with your finger. Or like you go to a concert, right? People pay money and they're like this yeah. the whole time. It's like, you're not going to watch the concert, but yeah. you're going to go home later and watch the video that you filmed with the concert. They are not going to watch it. And they're not. They're right. not going to watch it. It's about... It's like shit quality. Yeah. It's about showing other people that you went to the concert. And these other people are not going to watch it either. They're just going to scroll. Louis C.K. has that joke about people like filming their kids' ballet recitals. Like, the resolution on this phone is amazing. He's like, the resolution on the kid is fucking great right now. People did that during the Silver Eclipse, too. They were, the whole time, they're just looking through their screen. I'm just like, you travel all that way watching in person. Yeah, yeah. I was in Berlin recently, and when I go into a club there, they actually put stickers on your phone. Yeah, before I bump these, I want to hear from everyone who participated in this. Yeah. Um, one bullet point struck me as a little different from the rest when you were kind of listing advantages. A lot of it is about self control and self awareness, but then there was that empathy bullet point. Yeah. Which I think that really recommends the practice, at least to me. And I just want to know how big of a part that played in everyone else's experience. Like, like, did I experience an increase in empathy? Yeah. I mean, definitely not during the meditation itself because it's such an isolated experience. Um, I think, I think, I think it's a heightened sensitivity that you, that you, that, that I had afterwards that kind of, like, like maybe whereas before I felt much more capable of, of mediating what comes in and out emotionally after the after meditation, I'm just like, whoa! Like, I, like, I went to a, a gas station on my way back. I had a seven-hour drive. And, and just like, just like see, like feeling the people in the room, feeling like you know the cashier and this and that, and like you know everyone's in there, like they're on the headspace, they're on grooves, like someone's like, oh, I gotta like get this drink and this and that. Um, it was definitely like overwhelming, and and it felt um, very immediate. Um, so I think I think you could say it was an increase in empathy. Like it, it was, it was definitely something that I felt like viscerally. Um, so so maybe that kind of. I would agree with the heightened sense of awareness. At first, it's towards yourself, and you're kind of developing empathy towards yourself and your own sensations, and it kind of naturally just stems towards other people immediately after. Um, so yeah, definitely increased empathy, increased attention in general, so it, it's all kind of wrapped up in the same awareness, naturally. Interesting. Yeah, I was kind of saying the same thing, and I also want to say that um, as you progress, your experiences change, and you, you know, more and more things happen. So, in the beginning, it's just really hard to just keep your attention in your breath. And if you can do that, you can start doing other things. More and more change happens. For me, it felt like uh, since I was personally more relaxed, I had more room for empathizing with other people. And I didn't have to work or figure out a trick. It was all already there, just obscured by just noise. And if the noise goes away, it just it arises automatically. It was always, always there. Um, so yeah, that that's the way that I felt. I didn't have to engineer it. It was kind of it was kind of fun. I was like, oh, I already have these skills. It's just that yeah, you're like behind this film of oh, I've got to do this and that. 
so with, with that in mind, um, do you have any other other suggestions for like getting rid of that sort of noise in your life, or or or, or to you is is like like is daily meditation a good one? I think the attitude of wanting to get rid of it is a little problematic because that entails self judgment, and that's more noise. Um, so it's a little paradoxical. I think when you start meditating, you will notice that it's filled with these things that are um, that are paradoxical in many ways. Like there's no straight way of of of, of um, motivating yourself or motivating some sort of change directly. Because if it was that easy and that straightforward, it would be straightforward. But it's just that these are just matters of psychology, and they're very subtle, and there's no way to. Um, like force them like the forcing is a bit of the problem in itself so if you decide that i don't want this uh, this noise in my head that just adds more noise it's just directed towards yourself so it's more camouflaged so kind of like what what angela was saying that the empathy towards other people is just a subset of what is uh, uh, a, like a global empathy and all com- all encompassing empathy so you cannot love other people if you don't love yourself that's something that okay so by the way i i played you this clip of sam harris taking ecstasy when he was 17 years old i did it myself one time and that's like a shortcut to this empathetic stage and the first thing that you notice is that uh, the unconditional well it's not in yeah I think it's unconditional under the effects of the drug and it includes yourself and it has to include yourself because otherwise you cannot trust when, when, when you feel empathetic towards other people, you can't trust that it's coming from a good place if you're not feeling empathetic towards yourself. So in many ways, uh, if you turn, if you go on the other side of the argument, um, any, any sort of negativity that you imagine is being directed outside is also implicitly also directed inside because you don't feel good when you when you feel that way. So, the I think there's no straightforward answer or suggestion. Like this, it's not a theory. Like I said, it's a practice. And if you keep practicing, I think there are insights, but it's not very important to write them down and follow them. It's just like a, it's like going to the gym, I think. And things will just become simpler over time and there are people who are farther along this path to whom things are simple and they could come and tell you all they know but it won't make any difference because it's not it's about practice yeah so there are things i could tell you but it won't make much difference the only difference it will make is you will try to implement them and it doesn't work you'll just get more frustrated so but i mean if you just do i guess if you start with a short period of meditation every day um, then that should be helpful but I won't give you any guarantees on when it should start when you should start seeing changes that sets up expectations and that's a whole feedback cycle yeah. cool all right thank you very much again for, for, for turning up Thanks for visiting the Room of Lives. In the next episodes, I plan to interview Tim Lanning, who has been overseeing and helping to teach these 10-day silent retreats for many years.
So see you next time. Thank you.